10, resulted in the complete defeat of the royalist troops. Illustration, Simon Bolivar, L.L.I.B.R.A.D.I.R., A.S. A young man, liberator of the northern states of South America from Spanish rule, from an engraving by M.N. Bate, Irish Guides. This battle of Carabobo was one which had far-reaching effects in Venezuela. In preparation for this fight Bolivar's army was formed in three divisions. The first, commanded by General Pease, contained the Cazadores Britannicus, or British Light Infantry, numbering 800 men, and 100 of the Irish Legion. This division, with the local troops, was of 3.100 men. The second, commanded by Cadeno, consisted of 1.800, and the third, led by Ambrosio Plaza, was composed of the rifles, a regiment officered by Englishmen, and other regiments, in all 2.500 men. The army had suffered terrible privations, and, in crossing the river Aperito some time before the battle, many men, including a number of Englishmen, had actually perished from the attacks of that terrible fish, the pry. Mention has already been made of this fish, which, no bigger than a perch, is provided with teeth which will tear the flesh from the bones in a few seconds. It was from the attacks of flocks of these that the unfortunate men had succumbed. Just before the battle Bolivar rode along the front of his army, and it is said that the English gave him three hurrahs that were heard a mile off. After this, nevertheless, the attack was postponed until the next day, and during the interval the rain came down in tropical sheets. The Spaniards fought with extreme gallantry, and the battle was waged in the most determined fashion on both sides before victory definitely inclined to the Patriot forces. The English took a very prominent share in this battle, losing no less than 600 out of 900 men. Bolivar had now all but fulfilled the oath he had sworn years before in Rome. The Battle of Carabobo proved one of the most decisive of the campaign. Its conclusion marked the end of the Spanish occupation of the north. Bolivar had now cleared his own country of the Spaniards, and was free to turn his attention to Peru. In the southeast of the continent the struggle for liberty was far less prolonged than that in the districts of the center, west, and north. It may be that the wide, open, agricultural plains had infused into the dwellers of Argentina an inherent sense of independence which had continued to flourish and grow, notwithstanding the dominion of the Spaniards. In any case, it was here that the revolt was, if not more enthusiastic, at all events more rapid, since 1776. Moreover, the date when the provinces of the River Plate were exalted to the condition of a viceroyalty, a certain freedom of intercourse had obtained which had been utterly lacking before. The trade of the country had expanded, and imports from Europe were now permitted access to the River Plate without first being subjected to the supervision of Panama or Peru. When the struggle began, it found the Argentine patriots enthusiastic and prepared. On August 21, 1808, an act of fealty was sworn to Ferdinand V.I. This, nevertheless, met with disapproval on the part of many Argentines who desired the establishment of a hood dissimilar to that of Seville. The party in favor of this increased rapidly in strength, and shortly afterwards the viceroy, Liniers, resigned, although he had to a certain extent the support of the Patriot Party. His position in the face of the complicated situation had become extremely difficult. He was succeeded on July 30, 1809, by Baltasar Hidalgo de Cisneros. The latter lost no time in giving proof of liberal intentions. He opened the ports to English vessels, and the commercial situation of the country, which had been deplorable, improved immediately. 
In the meanwhile some revolutionary outbreaks at Chukwasaka and Lopal were suppressed by the royalist troops with a brutality and wanton slaughtering which roused a storm of indignation in Buenos Aires. Cornelio de Saavedra, one of the patriot leaders in the capital, succeeded, however, in preventing an open rising, since this would undoubtedly have been premature. A secret society was now formed in Buenos Aires, counting in its ranks Belgrano, Nicolas Rodriguez Pena, Manuel Alberti, Viamonte, Guido, and others. From this nucleus the regiment of Patricias was formed, and was commanded by Cornelio de Saavedra. The chief object of this society was the foundation of an adequate representative government. To this end its members worked towards the abolition of the viceroyalty and the formation of a new species of constitution. On May 22, 1810, a great meeting was held at which it was resolved that the authority of the viceroyalty had expired. On this it was proposed that a junta should be created. Confusion, dispute, and intrigue followed, but the mind of the people was made up, and its will was no longer to be denied. The viceroy, de Cisneros, reluctant to oppose the now strongly expressed popular will, on May 25, 1810, resigned his office in the presence of an immense multitude. From this day the independence of Argentina is officially counted, for on the spot of Hugda was established. Its members were Saavedra, Belgrano, Alberti, Castelli, Esquinaga, Matthew, Larry, Paso, and Moreno. While all this was occurring in Buenos Aires, strong royalist sympathies continued to prevail in the provinces. Montevideo, too, showed itself hostile to the new government. From this base the royalists were able to strike at the new republican headquarters at Buenos Aires, and on February 18 the Spanish fleet sailed to the spot and blockaded the capital. The Patriots now made their first important move. A force of 1.200 volunteers, commanded by Ocampo and Balcarce, marched against Cordoba, where Liniers and Conca were in command of the royalist forces. These latter were defeated and their leaders executed, flushed by its success. The Argentine army then invaded Peru. A little later followed the victory of Suipasha, after which all the country in the neighborhood declared itself openly for the revolutionists. Belgrano, in the meanwhile, led an army into Paraguay. He had confidently expected the adherence of the inhabitants of that country. These, however, remained loyal to the crown, and Belgrano, defeated, was obliged to retire. Operations were now begun against the Spanish troops in Uruguay. These were conducted by Belgrano, and in a very short time practically the entirety of the province was in the hands of the revolutionists. Montevideo alone, held by its strong Spanish garrison, continued to resist. The town was closely invested on its landward side. Very soon after this, unfavorable news from Peru caused the Argentines to abandon their aggressive attitude, an armistice was declared so far as Montevideo was concerned, and the South American forces retired from Uruguay. The news from the north, indeed, was sufficiently serious. After the victory of Suipasha a truce had been agreed upon by Castelli, who was in command of the Patriot forces, this he had observed loyally. But Guinecki, the leader of the Spanish troops, had proved himself less scrupulous. Without warning, he had attacked the Argentine army at Wacky, and had obtained a decisive and sanguinary victory, at the end of which the 800 Argentines who survived had been obliged to retire in some confusion to Potosi. Guinecki now in turn took the aggressive, and, advancing, he crushed the revolution at Cochabamba, and now prepared his forces for serious invasion. These reverses of fortune were not sufficient to discourage the ardor of the inhabitants of Buenos Aires. 
for that the idea of independence had become too strongly engrafted in the young nation, and on February 18, 1812, the blue and white of the Argentine flag was decided upon to the sound of enthusiastic acclamations. A month later Belgrano took over the command of the army in Peru in order to make a stand against the threatened invasion. In the first place he found caution necessary. The royalists, flushed with victory, had recaptured the towns of Salta and Jujuy, and Belgrano retired for a while in the face of their advances. The forces under the Spanish general, Tristan, followed him. This was Belgrano's opportunity. Falling upon the royalist army, he completely defeated it in a battle at Tucumán, and the Spaniards suffered a heavy loss in men and munitions of war. Belgrano, then in turn advanced and made once again for Salta. In the neighborhood of this town the Argentine flags were carried into battle for the first time, and their presence was welcomed as a favorable omen, for the victory remained with the Patriot forces. Belgrano showed himself generous as a victor by liberating the great majority of his prisoners on parole, which, it is regrettable to state, large numbers of the Spaniards broke. This victory completely changed the situation in the southeast. The Patriots were enabled to resume the aggressive, their armies were sent across once more into Uruguay, and Montevideo was again besieged. In the meanwhile a certain amount of rivalry had made its appearance among the intellectual Patriot leaders in Buenos Aires. The rival parties were headed respectively by Saavedra and Mariano Moreno. Moreno eventually retired from the hood, and was offered the post of Minister Plenipotentiary to Great Britain. This he accepted, but died on his voyage to Europe. The party he had formed, however, continued in being after his death under the name of Mornistas. The period, of course, was one of experiment, and just at this moment numerous forms of government were assayed, and the pattern of the Constitution frequently changed. On March 9, 1812, occurred an important event in the history of Argentina. On that date José de San Martín arrived in Buenos Aires in the British frigate George Canning. With him came Carlos Olver and Macias Zapiola, whose names were likewise destined to become famous in the annals of the Republic. On their arrival there was established in Buenos Aires a branch of the now important secret society originally founded in London, the Grand Reunion Americana. This branch was christened the Logia de Lautaro, and exercised much influence on the affairs of the revolution. San Martin was empowered by the government to raise a force of horse grenadiers, which subsequently became famous. In this regiment was all there in the capacity of Sargento Mayor, and Zapiola as captain. There was plenty of work for the newly constituted forces. San Martin's regiment was employed, in the first place in the endeavor to restrain the river-raiding expeditions which the Royalist fleet was undertaking from its base at Montevideo. The mischief effected by these incursions to the Patriot forces was very great. On February 3, 1813, however, San Martin dealt the Spaniards a severe blow in the neighborhood of Rosario. Here he surprised a landing party and defeated it utterly. This was San Martin's first victory, and it very nearly proved his last for he had his horse shot under him and all but lost his life. While this was going on in Argentina, the fortunes of war in Peru had again veered from a favorable to a perilous condition. On October 1, 1813, the Argentine army was badly defeated at Vicapuil, and in the same year it was again defeated at Ayuma. On this the Spaniards, seeing that their star was again in the ascendant, resumed possession of Chuquisaca and Potosi. San Martin was now sent to take charge of operations in Peru. On the Argentine side the campaign had in one sense degenerated, since the diminished numbers of the Republican forces now restricted them to guerrilla fighting. 
this species of warfare, as a matter of fact, sweep the hardy Argentines admirably, and under such brilliant leaders as Martin Guines, Ignacio Warnes, and Juan Antonio Alvarez de Arenales, their feats had kept the Royalist forces fully occupied. San Martin, on his arrival, immediately realized the advantages of this species of resistance, and encouraged it to the utmost. By this means alone was an invasion staved off. At the beginning of 1814 Montevideo was still in the hands of the Spaniards, who continued to command the estuary of the River Plate and the Great River System generally. Ominous news arrived from Europe. An important royalist expedition, it appeared, was being prepared in Spain. The outlook for the patriots was serious. A council of state was called in Buenos Aires, consisting of nine members, of which Olver was the most prominent. It was agreed that, so long as the Spanish fleet commanded the home waters, there was very little chance of driving their garrisons from the ports. It was resolved to establish a patriot fleet, which should sweep the seas clear of the royalist vessels. Three small vessels were in the first instance obtained the Hercules, the Zephyro, and the Nancy. The command of these was given to an Irishman, William Brown, who lost no time in displaying his fitness for the post, and who, indeed, played the part of a lesser Cochrane. With his insignificant force he vanquished the Royalist fleet and captured the island of Martin Garcia and blockaded Montevideo. On land General Olver took charge of the investing Patriot forces. Montevideo could now look for no assistance from the sea, and on June 20, 1814, after having suffered many hardships, the garrison capitulated, and with the collapse of its gallant defense ended the power of Spain in the river plate. San Martin was then appointed governor of Quil, with his headquarters at Mendoza. The situation in general was serious. Outside Argentina and Uruguay the royalist cause had held its own, and in many districts had triumphed. It was said that the Spanish expedition of 15.000 men was on the eve of Embarcation in Europe, and even in the victorious River Plate provinces dissensions between Artigas, the Uruguayan leader, and rival generals had resulted in civil war. It was undoubtedly necessary to obtain some recognition of the constitution in Europe. To this end Rivadavia and Belgrano proceeded to the Old World and sought the assistance of various countries, particularly that of England, on May 7th. 1816, they arrived in Europe, the harassed statesmen of Argentina had, after consideration, decided that the best means of avoiding anarchy was to establish a monarchy, the emissaries of the New World offered the throne to Don Francisco Polo, an adopted son of King Carlos I. these negotiations and others which succeeded them broke down and Belgrano returned to Buenos Aires, Rivadavia went to Madrid, where he was not permitted to remain. A little later Belgrano became possessed of the somewhat extraordinary idea of crowning a member of the family of the Incas. This naturally enough met with ridicule, and was rejected, but this is to anticipate. While all this was occurring, the struggle in Peru had continued to show the fickleness of the fortunes of war. Rondo had been appointed general-in-chief of the army of Peru. He, however, had proved himself a general of slow movements, and suffered several defeats. He also fell out with Queens and a battle ensued between the two sections of the Argentine forces. In this Rondo once again suffered defeat at the hands of the Gauchos. A belated peace was now made up between the leaders, and Guines was suffered to continue his brilliant campaign unchecked. In 1816 Puerto was elected dictator of Argentina, which now took its place as an independent state. The new republic had now time to look beyond its own frontiers. Its eyes turned first of all to the west, 
where the Chileans were still struggling against the garrisons of Spain. Events had not favored the Patriots on the western side of the Andes, and a number of the most prominent men had fled eastwards to Argentina, O'Higgins and many others establishing themselves at the town of Mendoza for the time being. There, unfortunately, a certain amount of jealousy had broken out between the Chilean leaders, for the existence of much of which there is no doubt that the Carrera family was largely responsible. The three brothers Carrera were very notable personalities in the War of Independence in Chile. In 1811 Don Juan José Carrera, who had attained to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel of Hazaras in Europe, returned to his native country to take part in its defense. He appointed himself Colonel of the National Guards, made his eldest brother, José Miguel, a Colonel of the Grenadiers, and his younger brother, Don Luis, Colonel and Commander of the Artillery. In 1812 Bernardo O'Higgins joined Carrera, who at first made him Lieutenant Colonel of the Line and afterwards promoted him to the rank of Brigadier General. In 1813 the three Carreras, with a number of other officers, were captured by the Spaniards, and O'Higgins assumed command of the army. When the three Carreras recovered their liberty a dispute occurred concerning the chief command, and the forces of the opposing parties actually came to blows on the plain of Maipu, where an action was fought, and where O'Higgins was made prisoner. After the say reconciliation was brought about, there is no shadow of doubt that a number of these patriot leaders may be ranked among the host of great men, sometimes on account of their qualities as leaders, sometimes for their statesmanship, but in almost every instance for their genuine patriotism. Nevertheless, there have been very few historical characters or temperaments which have been more difficult to estimate from contemporary accounts of their actions and motives. Jealousy entered very freely into the patriot ranks, and the various chroniclers, however honestly they may have written, and however deep their convictions may have been, were inevitably swayed to a very great extent by this. Thus a partisan of the Carreras would have been a strange being, according to the lights of these times, had he been able to discern a spot of goodness in the personality of San Martin, and the admirer of the heroic Cochrane would have had no higher opinion of the Argentine liberator. The reverse of the medal was, of course, shown by San Martin's adherents who might safely have been trusted to miss no defect in Cochrane, or in any other of his party. This condition of affairs prevailed throughout, and extended for the length and breadth of the continent. Bolivar, Sucre, and everyone of note, was a hero to his own followers, and more or less a villain to the rest of the allied, yet rival, parties. As a rule these prominent leaders suffered rather than gained from the situation, since the calumnies of the period are more abundant than the Logotions. It is only now that the history of the early 19th century is beginning to be written calmly and dispassionately, and as a result the participants in the great deeds of that epoch appear, with justice, greater to the modern world than they did in the eyes of their contemporaries. Chapter XVII The War of Independence II It was at Mendoza that the famous Argentine general, San Martin, recruited the army destined for the campaign of Chile. In 1817 everything was prepared and with an army of 4.000 men San Martin set out on one of the most extraordinary military marches that history has known. Indeed, his passage of the Andes is considered as unique by numerous military experts. The advance of San Martin was not altogether unexpected by the royalist forces, whose spies kept the Spanish commander informed of this latest move on the part of the Patriot Army. General San Martin, becoming aware of this, repaid these spies in their own coin, taking them as it seemed, into his confidence, he informed them of the route he was about to take, and when the time came chose another and a parallel pass, 
Hastening down the tremendous rocky walls of the western side of the Andes, San Martin engaged the Spanish forces and won an important victory at Chacabuco. The Royalists, under General Osorio, rallied and made a last desperate stand, but their forces were decisively and finally defeated on April 5, 1818, at Maipu, and this action resulted in the definite liberation of Chile. San Martin was now the hero of Chile, and was begged to accept the protectorship of the new republic. His deeds on land were rivaled by those of Admiral Cochrane on sea. The gallant Irish sailor was at the time busily occupied in sweeping the Pacific Ocean clear of the Spanish vessels, and in performing those extraordinary feats of valor for which his memory is famed. Unfortunately, misunderstandings between the pair eventually resulted in open enmity between Cochrane and San Martin. This became accentuated when the campaign was undertaken in Peru. When San Martin, not content with his victories in Chile, led his armies for the liberation of the North into Peru itself, and into the headquarters of the remaining Spanish power, it was in Peru, then, that the dispute between Cochrane and San Martin broke out in a public fashion, its origin in this instance was a difference of opinion concerning the measures to be taken for the capturing of Cayado Castle, the impetuous Irishman was for storming the place at once, the prudent San Martin, on the other hand, was desirous of bringing about the surrender without bloodshed, the latter had his way, but was subjected to some criticism, since a number of royalist soldiers who escaped were enabled to carry on the campaign in the interior. The second and more violent dispute broke out on San Martin's refusal to pay the fleet out of the funds in Lima. On this Lord Cochrane took forcible possession of a large sum of money at the port of Encon, thus widening still further the already grave breach between the two, once or twice, indeed. It was a mere chance which prevented an outbreak of active hostilities between the sea and land forces. Fortunately for all concerned, matters were not destined to reach such a pass. This, however, is somewhat in advance of the period with which we are dealing, and it will be necessary to return for a short while to Peru in its colonial state. In Peru, during the last few years of the Spanish regime, the royalist authorities, bending to the urgent necessity of a concession to public opinion which might enable them to retain their power for a little longer, published some periodical papers, which, although of course strongly biased in their intelligence in favor of the royalist cause, nevertheless gave a more or less accurate account of many of the events which had passed into hard and fast history. Thus the inhabitants of Lima were enabled to learn of the establishment of the republics in Colombia, Buenos Aires, and Chile, in 1812. Moreover, the Inquisition had been abolished. Of this, Lima had been the headquarters in South America from the day of its first institution. Here a similar stern and merciless procedure to that in other parts of the world was carried on. Indeed, the capital of the senior viceroy was in every way the most reactionary spot in South America. In 1812, when it became known that the Cortes of Spain had abolished the Inquisition, a number of Peruvians entered the premises of the Holy Office in order to inspect them. According to a one who took part in it, the visit was unexpectedly exciting, for, on ransacking the documents, many of those present found their own names marked down as those of future victims. The sight of the torture room inspired very different feelings in the breasts of the Lemanians, and the sight of the iniquitous instruments enraged them to the point of destroying much within the building. Many trophies and relics were carried away as mementos of the occasion. The following morning, however, the Archbishop proceeded in state to the cathedral, and declared all those excommunicated who had taken, and were retaining, any object belonging to the Inquisition, 
by this means a certain proportion of the objects were recovered, nevertheless, during its latter days doubtless from a presentiment of the nearness of its end the methods of the Inquisition had become comparatively softened, thus, when at the beginning of the 19th century an old fortune teller, accused of witchcraft, was made to stand penitent in the chapel of the tribunal, and one of the secretaries read out a list of the wretch's misdeeds, the result was very unusual for anything connected with so justly dreaded an organization, for the old fortune teller, doubtless tickled by a recital of his feats, burst into a loud laughter, in which he was joined by the majority of the spectators, it is said that the viceroy Castelfuerte, when summoned before the Inquisition, obeyed the mandate, but he brought with him his bodyguard, and stationed two pieces of artillery outside the building of the tribunal, after this he entered, and, placing his watch on the table, told the Inquisitor that, unless they finished their business with him in an hour, the place would be battered to pieces, in the face of this information the interview terminated almost immediately, it has been frequently brought against the inhabitants of Lima that, while in almost every other part of the continent the Americans had already freed themselves, or were fighting with that object, they had remained in a more or less passive state, yet this condition of affairs was practically inevitable when it is considered that Lima was the great stronghold of Spain, filled to overflowing with Spanish officials and military officers, it is certain enough that, had Lima been captured in the first place by the insurgents, the royalist resistance in all the other colonies would inevitably have collapsed immediately, but it did not in the least follow that because Buenos Aires, Santiago, and other towns had become the seats of republican governments, that the movement should influence the mainspring of Spanish authority at Lima. The Spaniards of Lima were reputed, for that reason, the haughtiest of any in the continent, and their manner towards the Criollos continued as overbearing as ever during the first stages of the revolution. It is said that when the reinforcements came from Spain as, for instance, when in 1813 the regiment of Tolivar arrived the behavior of these Spaniards became more arrogant than ever. This attitude proved in the end to be possessed of a disconcertingly slender foundation. As a matter of fact, the troops which arrived from Spain during this period were for the most part composed of very indifferent material, both officers and men bearing the worst of characters, since every efficient soldier was urgently required in the mother country at that time. Numbers of the Spanish troops themselves at this stage gave many signs of insubordination, more especially when, as occasionally occurred, their pay was delayed, and on two occasions a widespread mutiny was only staved off by the intervention of the Viceroy. Nevertheless, the exultation of the Spanish civilians reached its most fevered height in April, 1818, when the news of Spanish victories over the Chileans were succeeding each other at short intervals. According to contemporaneous historians, the Spaniards formed themselves into groups in the streets, and mocked and insulted every Criollo who had to pass them by. So arrogant was their conduct that no Criollo who valued his self-respect dared to enter a coffee house in which a group of these Spaniards was assembled. The total news of the defeat of the Spanish general Osorio at might became as a thunderbolt, and the shocked and humbled Spanish had to make the most of an altogether unexpected and painful situation. W.B. Stevenson has an interesting account of the contrast which obtained at this period between the state of affairs in Lima and in Santiago, the contrast between the society which I had just quitted in the capital of Peru and that which I here found in the capital of Chile, was of the most striking kind. The former, oppressed by proud mandatories, imperious chiefs, and insolent soldiers, had been long laboring under all the distressing effects of espionage greatest enemy to the charm of every society the overbearing haughty Spaniards, 
either with taunts or sneers, harrowing the very souls of the Americans, who suspected their very oldest friends and often their nearest relations. In this way they were forced to drain the cup of bitterness to the last dregs, without daring by participation or condolence to render it less unpalatable. Except, indeed, they could find an Englishman, and to him they would invoke some their inmost thoughts, believing that every Briton feels as much interest in forwarding the liberty of his neighbor as he does in preserving his own, in lean of the tertulias, or chip-chat parties, and even the gaiety of the public promenade, had almost disappeared, and quando southeast a cabaristo, when will this end, was constantly ejaculated, in Santiago every scene was reversed, mirth and gaiety presided at paseos, confidence and frankness at the daily tertulias, Englishmen here had evinced their love of universal liberty, and were highly esteemed, friendship and conviviality seemed to reign triumphant, and the security of the country, being the fruit of the labor of its children, was considered by each separate individual as appertaining to himself, his sentiments on its past efforts, present change and future prosperity, were delivered within controlled freedom, while the supreme magistrate, the military chief, the soldier and the peasant, highlighted each other as countrymen, and only acknowledged a master in their duty or the law. As has already been explained, it was inevitable that the struggle which was taking place in Peru, the Viceroyalty, where was now centered all the remaining Spanish power of the continent, should have been more prolonged than that in Chile, and far more so than had proved the contest in the provinces of the River Plate. So far as Lima was concerned, the result was not so long in doubt. Finding his hold on the capital no longer tenable in the face of the advance from the south of the victorious army, the Viceroy evacuated the town on July 26, 1821, and the Patriot forces, entering the city, proclaimed from that place the freedom of Peru. General Bolivar, in the meanwhile, having now cleared the northern countries of the Spanish troops, was marching down into Peru, and thus the stream of liberators from the south came into contact with those of the north. An historical interview was held at Guayaquil on July 26, 1822, between the two greatest men of the continent of that time, San Martin and Bolivar. The details of this interview had never been made public, but what occurred may be surmised more or less accurately from the knowledge of the characters of the two men. In one sense Bolivar's horizon was wider than that of San Martin, for practical purposes, indeed. There is no doubt that this horizon of the northern liberator had extended itself to a somewhat dangerous and impracticable degree. His dream was a federated South America a single nation, in fact, which, save for the great Portuguese possession of Brazil, 